Support for this episode comes from SAS. SAS is going all in on AI to help the world get more done with data. See for yourself in Las Vegas, April 16th to 19th at SAS Innovate, the data and AI experience for everyone and every role from top executives to data scientists, engineers, analysts, and more. I'll be there leading a panel discussion about the importance of responsible AI. It's just one of the many sessions that will highlight the massive potential of AI. Visit innovate.sas.com and use the code CARA to save $100 on registration. I'll see you there. Support for this episode comes from The Current. The Current podcast is back with an exciting new season featuring marketing executives from the world's most influential brands. Tune in to hear what's driving conversation in the fast-moving world of digital advertising with unique insights from brands as diverse as Hilton, Instacart, Moderna, Major League Soccer, and more. And in this presidential election season, The Current explores what a national political advertiser like the National Republican Senatorial Committee and a major CPG brand like Hershey can learn from each other. Listen in and subscribe to The Current at The Current current.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And Scott, happy belated birthday. Uh, thanks very much, Kara. Uh, you got me a sweater, but I would have preferred a moaner or a screamer. Oh, get my it? God. Versus <laughs> a sweater. Get it? That's another bad joke. You need to like up the joke game in this and yeah. in, in your advanced age and stuff. People generally find my profanity fine as long as I'm funny. What you're saying is yes. I'm just being profane. No, no, I, I think it. you just need to be funny. I just think in, as you're advancing in the years, I think you should up the game on your jokes. That's all. You know what I did for my birthday? Yeah. Uh, so I, they said, "What do you want to do on your birthday?" So I said, "I want to have a big breakfast." Yeah. I want to work out with my yeah. boys. And then me and my boys went to the Brentford-Everton game. We're going to these little or kind of smaller stadiums. We had a, just a, one, a really wonderful day. I always had a nice birthday. That was really sweet. That's a very good birthday. That's a very We're yeah, going to be with you birthday. next year. Just You've already invited me to your party. Oh, that's right. You're coming. You're big, yeah. your big one. Big I'm thing. not going to say the year, but it's a big one. Yeah, it's a big, big one. 50. Yeah. Big yeah. 50. 50? Okay. Do you know, just go with it. Sure. Um, Adam Alter, my colleague at NYU, has done all this research. Supposedly the year you make really big decisions, whether it's to change your job, get divorced, mm -hmm. commit suicide, right. disproportionately happen in the nines. Something about 29, 39, oh. 49, which I am now. You're not. Um, <laughs> it's my birthday. Right. It's Why my birthday. Why just go with 29? You're 29. Yeah, I just, don't. Naked, I don't look 29. I, if okay. it's dark, I can pull off all 49. Right. Okay. Anyways, he said that all of your big decisions and oh. like life-changing. Yeah, so I'm, oh. here comes the big decisions. Get ready, Kara. What are we doing? Wow. Yeah, I don't know. That's exciting. Did I make a lot of decisions last year? I don't think I did. I guess I children. Oh, I had more children. Right? Oh, wait, yes. that. There was that. You decided uh, you yes. decided to be 105 when your kid goes to college. Yes, um, that's exactly right. Well, I had a lovely time with my children this weekend too. We took a hike in the uh, in at, we took a three mile hike to ice cream. So the kids actually walked three miles. It was great through the woods. There's very beautiful woods around Washington D.C. And so we did a nice hike, and then we took the bus back. They they had not taken a bus, so I took a bus with them. Anyway, it was a lovely weekend. We both had lovely family weekends, and I'm excited to spend next year's birthday with you, your 49th birthday with you next there you year. Go. I'll We're bring in you in Scotland. Scotland. I'm going to be there. Yeah. I told Amanda she was. She, she gave me an a high. You know, when, you know when the eye, the, the eyebrow cocks Viral? upwards. Yeah, she's like, oh, like that's how she said is, oh, like that. 
like that. So huh. she's excited. <laughs> I'm excited. It doesn't sound um, that excited. No, she was excited. We're very excited. We love Scotland. We think it's beautiful, and we'll be there. We will be there. We shall be there for your birthday. Good, good. Yes. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. Also, there's so much going on. There's so much going on. We're going to talk about the new election poll that has Democrats worried, uh, what Sam Bankman-Fried's guilty verdict means for crypto. And we'll talk uh, to the New York Times reporter, Kashmir Hill, about her new book on facial recognition. She's a badass of this area and a lot of crypto stuff. So it's actually a good time to talk to her. Uh, but first, the Washington Post has a new CEO, William Lewis. He's British. He's a former reporter turned executive. He previously was CEO of Dow. Jones and publisher of the Wall Street Journal. Jeff Bezos said in a statement that he was drawn to Lewis's, quote, love of journalism and passion for driving financial success. I spent a lot of time finding out about him from people who know him. I I, I missed him. He was brought in to sort of clean things up after the big uh, hacking debacle. They brought a bunch of different people. He's a reporter. He's a longtime reporter. He's turned executive, essentially. Um, he's got a pretty good rep. I would say he's right of uh, center maybe, but people seem to like him. Lots of different people I called around to about a half a dozen people who know him. Um, what do you think of the choice? I think it's unimportant and the media is obsessed with itself. But anyways, um, the okay. only thing the only thing I would, come on, who gives a flying fuck who's the new CEO of Washington Post? Uh, anyways, the thing that's interesting is that the new heads of the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, what do they all have in common? What? They're all Brits. So CNN, right? British. CNN. Not Meredith. Meredith is not. Meredith Levian is not British. Uh, I'm sorry. CNN, the head of uh, the new head of the Wall Street Journal, and the new yes. head of the Washington Post. All Brits. Yes, M Emma. Yes, yes. Well, they were. Is he? A, he's British. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, she's the new editor. Yes. That's different. This guy's the CEO. I yeah, love how they, you work through stuff real time. This is fun. Is this how we watch your brain working? No, shut, I'm just or thinking because they're not exactly on the same level as CEO is uh, is different, right. um, is, a, right. is an American. Um, but yes, there's a lot of Brits. They like a Brit. They like to bring in a Brit. If you are if you have a British accent, you want to go mm -hmm. to work for a consulting firm because everyone's under the impression you're 10 IQ points smarter than you actually are. Yes, that is true. It just, you sound very smart. Uh, or Northern European, something you can't identify. I think people are in, see people who run US media, they identify them and they stereotype them as being to one pole or the other, one string or the other. So I think people coming in to interview uh, to be the head of media organizations that pride themselves on trying to be balanced or just mm -hmm. about the facts, uh, I think they hear someone as British and immediately think, oh, this person oh, is a little yes. bit more reasonable. I'm sure that's what happened with Jeff. You know, this guy's got a rep for being good at talking to rich guys. That's another thing he does. That's I would good not say it's a negative. To rich guys, you know, he's good at. Like, does that mean he's a prostitute at the bar of the Four Seasons? What does no, that mean? No, all that those people are also. But um, it's, it's actually asking for it, a friend. Isn't asking it the King Cole bar? Isn't it the King Cole bar? From what I, I understand, I have been there once, and yeah. two mobsters got in a fight when I was there. I've been at the. Oh. oh, but you know who I did see? I saw Jared oh. and Ivanka there, and they came over and said hi. Jared was my student. Oh, the King Cole bar. That to me, I have heard that's the prostitute bar in New York, but I don't know. Um, allegedly, allegedly. I have I told you I'm hooker blind. I'm totally hooker blind. I don't think yeah. I've ever. And then yeah. someone said to me, uh, gave me like a, a quick, kind of a quick spotting mechanism. They said, Scott, yeah. for you, any woman who returns your eye contact is probably a prostitute. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, but that's I've true. never ever actually seen a prostitute. I'm not good at. Um, 
I'm not good at picking them out. I'm hooker blind. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know how we devolved that from the British guy. All right. In any case, um, it, you know, he's got a good reputation. I've heard from some of the people who were involved in the talks, and they were all very worried about the finances and what to do and whether Jeff had the stomach to spend money where he needs, he's got to spend if he really wants to go anywhere with this thing, um, or else it's just going to bump along. And that's their worry is that's going to bump along, as you know, as you were noting by saying, who cares? Um, speaking of which, he announced He's, he might have extra money, and now he's leaving Seattle and moving to Miami to be closer to his parents. Plus, Blue Origin operations are shifting to Cape Canaveral. He's also from there, by the way. He graduated high school. This one right. I'm not so irritated about. He's there for taxes, I assume, but he is actually from there. So let us give him a break. Okay, on this one. Uh, hold on. Okay, give me an actual fucking break. <laughs> he's moving to Florida to be closer to his father. He's close okay. to them. So first off, at some point, these people are going to realize we're not idiots. Uh, I moved to Florida in 2011. And one of the reasons I moved down there, the primary reason I moved down there is because we couldn't get our kids into school. I wasn't Uh making any money at the time. But anybody who moves there, especially if it's California or New York to Florida, Mm -hmm. recognizes that a 13% swing in taxes, if you reinvest it, is enormous. Yeah. And there is something about, I do believe, I used to think that we needed to normalize the tax structure in the United States because it was straight tax avoidance. Now, having said that, there is something to competition that if a state like Texas or Florida can manage to run the state on higher property taxes and lower income taxes, that it creates healthy and needed competition such that when state legislatures, in order to curry votes Mm -hmm. with whoever it is, special interest groups or unions, actually says, okay, If we just tax everyone out of existence, at some point, people are going to leave the state and the tax base is going to erode. Mm -hmm. There is a healthy competition. Having said that, the very disturbing part about this Mm -hmm. is that this is yet another transfer of income from the poor and the middle class to the rich. Because the bottom line is of the tens of thousands of people who work for Amazon in Seattle who have registered capital income gains of $10,000, $100,000, maybe even a million dollars. Very few of them have the luxury and the option to move to Florida. Who has? Yeah. Who are the most mobile people in the world who Rich can engage? Hundred percent, and that's the problem. When when France passes a uber wealthy tax, what do you know? The wealthiest man in the world moves to Belgium. <laughs> so, what you have to recognize, what I think they should probably do, is what they do with options, and that is, if you move to Texas. You get to, and then you sell as Elon Musk says, you sell all the stock you have. Mm-hmm. You The next day, the next year, you no longer are subject to the taxes, despite the fact that you leverage California infrastructure mm-hmm. or that Jeff has been leveraging the unbelievable engineering department at the University of Washington. Also, the incredible, Microsoft is there. Everybody. I mean, he's just registered all of this investment, public investment for middle-class taxpayers, and he's monetizing it and avoiding those taxes by moving to a low-income state. He gets to do that on his shares. Mm-hmm. But in terms of options, when you exercise options, it is based on where you were when those options vested. Oh, interesting. So if he had, if, if all of his capital gains were from options and some of the capital gains that Musk realized were from options he was awarded, if they were vesting over four years and he moved to Texas three into those that four-year vesting period, he would... of the gains from his options would be taxed based on California taxes. And I'm wondering, Kara- Well, no, not for him, Seattle, because they just put a new wealth tax in Seattle and they're they're contemplating more. They're in in Washington state. Yeah, but isn't it held up in the quarter? Anyways, my point is- In any case- What I think they should move to is some sort of thing that says, okay, Jeff, 
you're you're going to start to sell down your ninety billion dollars in Amazon stock. Yeah. Our yeah. view is that the vast majority of it, that wealth was accreted in in Washington. Right. And any money accreted from this point forward, if you're really living in Florida, fine. But this sort of tax avoidance where you don't match the taxes to the investments made, made by your fellow citizens while right. you were there, yeah. there's something uncomfortable about that. I would agree. I would agree. I, I, I find it disturbing. In this case, I in, let me just say, his parents are there. He did grow up there. This is not like he's not going like somewhere weird. It's, it is where he's from. His Blue Origin operations are going to be in Florida. So leaving, moving there seems a little more believable in that regard. And I'm sure Lauren is not like loving Seattle. She, she's, she's a Miami gal. You know, I'm sorry. She just is. She's hot. Look at her Instagram. She's a Miami gal. I think there are personal things here, but I agree with you that he, he got most of his wealth from moving his, he and his former wife to Seattle. That's what, who made him. And so he does owe something to that state and that, uh, that city. Absolutely. No question. Anyway, uh, another thing that you've talked about a lot, and actually you wanted us to talk about, and I agree with you, is major changes in the real estate industry are likely coming following a court ruling. Last week, a federal jury found the National Association of Realtors and several other brokerages conspired to artificially inflate commissions paid to real estate agents. The association and brokerages were ordered to pay damages of nearly $1.8 billion. The chief executive of National Association of Realtors resigned two days later. It's worth noting he'd also been facing sexual harassment allegations. So how will this impact buying or selling a house? You were very interested in this. I think this is the biggest business story that was the most underreported of last week. And that is, it's not very romantic. It's not very interesting. But in terms of impact on the real economy, it's enormous. Mm -hmm. People's largest asset or 80 or 90 percent of Americans are largest asset, especially older Americans, is their house. And the National Realtors Association has figured out a way to basically hide costs, transaction fees. If you want to be on the MLS, the major listing, you have to agree to what's called right. an offer of compensation. The compensation comes out of the seller's pocket. So, and they have to offer compensation to the buyer's broker. So the buyer doesn't negotiate the fee directly with the broker because what difference does it make? So it's all led to an ecosystem where it's less competitive than most. And as a result, Versus the UK, where real estate commissions are kind of three to four percent, they're five to six in the US. And when you're talking about people where average home four hundred twenty thousand dollars, people move on average every five years. You're talking about about two thousand dollars a year mm -hmm. in commissions for most homeowners. That's real money. It is, and you can trade stocks for like point one percent commission. The biggest asset in your house, and it's a fairly liquid market. You pay five to six percent commission on it. There's also a ton of brokers out there. So you'd think, well, why on earth, like every other ecosystem, haven't we seen people pop up and say, I'm a new broker, I'll do it for, you know, 50% off because I need to get established. Why hasn't right. competition starched down the costs here? I think this is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's interesting how we buy and sell homes is so, um, it's one of these big costs that we pretend isn't a big cost. That's all that I always oh, think when yeah, I talk exactly to people. That's exactly right. And we spend more time on like stock, everything else, but it is usually someone's biggest asset when they have an asset like this. Not everybody does have a house, by the way. And the way it's done is so, you know, I did like, I know you make fun of some of the different real estate attempts to try to clean up the real estate selling process, whether it was Compass or whatever, mm -hmm. um, or the, or Nextdoor or something. Like that. But I did appreciate, like, why is this process so onerous? The, arguably the greatest regulatory capture, other than the probably the hospital 
in the insurance lobby for the medical industrial complex that where Americans pay 13,000 a year versus 6,500 in Australia, Canada, mm-hmm. or Britain for worse healthcare. The most regulatory capture of the results in kind of an unusual or anomalies in the economy is the real estate industry. And that is, and who owns real estate? Rich people. So if I sell a home, I can 1031 it and it gets tax deferred. I can roll it into another real estate without paying taxable mm-hmm. gains. Where if I sell shares in a stock, once I sell it, I have to pay the gains on it. I can, if I own an office building, while it's appreciating in value, I can depreciate it 3% a year. I can lever it up five to one. I can write off the interest on it. Mm-hmm. The real estate lobby has made the real estate industry the most tax advantage. In addition, they're in bed with the insurance industry. Do you know if you're in Florida or somewhere else, you can't get a mortgage yeah. unless you prove insurance. You know what I've done? I own some property in Florida. I'm in mm-hmm. a privileged position where I didn't have to take out a mortgage. I have been self-insured on health insurance and on property, wind, wow. fire, because when you do the math- Wait, you didn't, self-insurance means you don't have insurance, correct? don't have insurance. That's right. And okay. again, again, 45 cents on the dollar of all insurance goes to profits and administration, meaning you get 55 cents back. Mm-hmm. So when I did the math on a rental property I own in Delray Beach, unless it burns to the ground every like 14 years, mm-hmm. I'm better off self-insuring. But you can't right. self-insure if you're not rich and need to yeah. get a mortgage, because the mortgage yeah. guys are in bed with the insurance guys. Insurance is yet. Yeah. We've talked about this. My health insurance cost mm-hmm. me 55000 a year for me and my family because I'm a narcissist and I want the gold-plated insurance. I went naked, no health insurance. Oh, you're a bad person, you're a bad father. No, you're not. I have enough money to survive any illness. Mm-hmm. Five years, two hundred seventy-five grand. that will buy a lot of health care. So again, the insurance industry is nothing but a transfer of wealth from poor and middle-class oh. people who can't absorb these risks to rich people who can't. Right. That's true. Do you think Bezos has a mortgage? Oh God! <laughs> no, he bought no, a big he pays house. Cash for everything. He big. You know. You know. Uh, Ivanka was at uh, some party with her with Lauren. There are a lot of pictures of Kim Kardashian and Lauren and Ivanka Trump with Mark Andreessen's wife hanging out in the background. That was quite a photo. Anyway, should be fun times down in Florida. Let's go down. Let's go stay at your house. It'll be fun. I love Florida. Oh Let's God! Go You've been to my house. I have. Of course, I stayed there. I stay at all your homes. Anyway. But wait, um, hold on. More importantly, how many dead hookers does it take to change a light bulb? Oh, no. Stop with the hookers. Apparently, Kara, not three, because my basement is still dark. Oh, my God. (laughs) Better? No. Anyway, last week, over the weekend, Elon Musk launched an AI bot called Grok. One of my favorite words is Grok, so I'm kind of pissed off he's using it. As part of his new venture, XAI, uh, Grok apparently has a, quote, rebellious streak, just obnoxious is what I think it is, and it answers spicy questions. Grok will be available to X Premium Plus users at $16 a month. Um, I haven't tried Grok. Not going to buy Grok. What do you think of Grok? I actually think it's a really good idea. The thing that I think it's sort of strange about these LLMs is in an mm-hmm. attempt to recognize that if you feed media, if you feed in historical data, it's going to have a bias because the history of the world and the history of America is that we have we have biases, we have yeah. stereotypes, we have racism built into our books, into our literature. Yeah. And so you can tell these things have been tweaked to try and compensate for that. And when you ask it a question, it'll condition mm-hmm. things and it'll say... It, it does come across, the LLMs mm-hmm. do come across as a bit woke. Yeah. And so him offering a LLM that I bet is going to be a little bit offensive and red pill yeah. will have an audience right out of the gates. I actually think yeah, from a marketing okay. perspective, it's actually quite smart. Do you think people will pay for it? 
if it's it, just if an it, entertainment like it's gonna it's it, you know i just it, it's gonna be using twitter information it's supposed to rival chat gpt yeah they're they're anodyne they're anodyne is what it is is what you're saying i don't know if woke is really the word it's just they don't want to say racist things to someone which i think is probably yeah. a good thing to tweak i'm not saying they're right or wrong doing this i think i think i think their intentions are noble that we want to you know, we want to recognize that all the data we put in here might end up with things that are not only not true, but are hurtful or right. discriminatory, whatever it might be, right? So they want to be thoughtful about that. They're also covering their ass because immediately everybody, when they get an LLM, I have- Goes the, and tries to get it to do a bad thing. I have PropG.ai. I built mm -hmm. an LLM, input mm -hmm. all the transcripts from this podcast, all of my newsletter mm -hmm. because- Did you ask me? No, you didn't, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You're being anodyne. Anyway, mm -hmm. so no, I'm not. Uh, I get a lot of emails from people asking questions, and I say, I, I'm sorry, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. Ask prop.ai. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. You can tweak it to say, be more irreverent, be more profane, be more politically correct, whatever mm -hmm. it might be, and it'll come back with a different, a different tone. And right. I, I would bet if it's a good LLM, yep. uh, um, I would bet that people do... The the opportunity in LLMs will be like a healthcare LLM or one that's focused on yeah, certain yeah, types of stocks, ones. niches and things like that. This is a toy. I mean, I immediately, I was dying to get on there because I wanted to ask you questions like, should a billionaire be denying people of their severance payments? Which he's doing. Is it a good form to accuse a coworker of a sex crime when it's mm -hmm. not founded? Did a gay lover actually beat up the speakers? I wanted to ask it those questions and see what it what it came back with. Ah, that's funny. I don't love the the use of woke stuff. It's it, anodyne is the word you're looking for, bland, inoffensive, innocuous, and that's what you don't like. That's I think a that's word. what, yeah, I think that's what right. they're trying that's to do. Word. And he's using woke as a just like a marketing tool. Whatever. Agreed. Good Agreed. luck, Elon. I will not pay for it, but good luck. I don't really. I have other things that entertain me more, such as TikTok and other things. So, um, anyway, let's get to our first big story. Sam Bankman-Fried's trial took about five weeks, but it took a jury less than five hours to find him guilty on seven charges, including wire fraud, securities fraud, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. Bankman-Fried's charges together carry a maximum sentence of 110 years, sentencing is set to happen in March. His lawyer alluded to an appeal in a statement saying, quote, Mr. Bankman-Fried maintains his innocence and will continue to vigorously fight the charges against him. Um, were you surprised by how it shook out? Uh, no, I, I mean, quite frankly, he's not only has committed fraud, he has terrible judgment. There's no way his lawyer said you should take the stand. Yeah. I, I remember being at the Andrew Ross Sorkin Steelbook conference and where he did an interview. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, this kid is clearly not listening to anybody because he mm -hmm. just added 10 or 20 years to a sentence in this interview. Wow. Yeah. Um, you don't. This was post, right? This was post. Oh, his, yeah. This was yeah. after he'd been like subpoenaed. Like Yeah. Yep. And I'm like, this is just the dumbest thing he could have done. And uh, I, I feel bad for his parents. Um, but look, it, it, there is a lesson here. And that is, if you're blessed with success, mm -hmm. you have to implement. Everyone around you is going to tell you you're amazing to the point where you're going to start believing that small incremental violations of the law are not violations of the law, and then they become big violations of the law, and that somehow you could just throw up your shoulders and say, I mean, he built his career based on trying to create this myth or this story that he was a genius. And then his defense became a story on how he was an idiot. Well, mm -hmm. I didn't know. And it's like, well, okay, which is it, boss? Yeah. And 
uh, you know, he's, he's going to jail for a very, very long time. But where I was headed with this is if you're successful, the people who stay successful and stay grounded and, you know, maintain their marriages, maintain their friendships, maintain their success, maintain their economic livelihood, maintain their freedom, are people who always implement guardrails. I'm going to make sure there are people around me who can tell me like it is. I check with lawyers. I check with my board. I check with people who push back. I think kids are really important. You know why? Mm -hmm. Kids remind you you're not that fucking cool. Yeah. Kids are just not impressed by it. My, my sons are so unimpressed by me. Hmm. And to a certain extent, they kind of keep it real. And a good spouse and a good partner will tell you when yeah. like you're full of shit. That's not true. You're reading your own press. A good mm -hmm. board will say, no, you can't do that. That is not cool. It's yeah, illegal. Yeah, this guy or, had nothing around him. Or he pushed or he pushed people around. I think he was quite aggressive in terms of um, pretending he was feckless. And then everybody did what he said. Um, interesting. So the Atlantic had a headline, Silicon Valley May Never Learn Its Lesson. Do you think people keep falling for these characters? Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement this case, she sent a clear message to anyone who tries to hide their crimes behind a shiny new thing. They claim no one else is smart enough to understand. The Justice Department will hold you accountable. Interestingly, the VC firm Sequoia is getting dragged after in the aftermath. One of the partners, uh, I think it was Alfred Lynn, tweeted about how the company evaluated its due diligence process after FDX collapsed and determined it had been deliberately misled and lied to. These people didn't do due diligence. Firms included New Enterprise Associates, SoftBank, Sequoia, BlackRock, Collective putting $2 billion into FTX. So tell, talk to me about that, the due diligence part of it. You, you, you get involved in all kinds of companies. And it's sort of a lot of people go along to get along kind of thing. Uh, there's just a different approach. When General Catalyst invested in my last or two companies ago, L2, mm -hmm. I think conservatively, they called 50 people I had worked with. Oh, wow. And interviewed them about me. I mean, people that I hadn't talked to in 10 years. And the amount of diligence they did on the numbers, and they brought in an accounting firm to pour over everything. They, this firm was calling me and saying, we see this $4,000 charge here. I mean, they did a full body cavity search. Mm, what I also found out from another investor is mm -hmm. he was about to put a billion dollars into FTX that when they asked for financials, he said, we don't have financials. I can send you a text message that summarizes our financials. Wow. And when you see the gains that the people who invested last year made, your standards come down. You're like, okay, this is a new world. Let's get super aggressive. Everyone's making money but us. Mm -hmm. We have access to something special. This is a tale as old as time, and yeah, it's not going to stop. That's what I whether, said. Whether it's Adam Newman, there'll be Elizabeth Holmes. There'll be a new character that comes across as very honest, comes across as an innovator, and the opportunity, the sense, you know, the illusion of scarcity to get in erodes your ability. And look to at start. those guys are in it. Those guys are in it. Those guys are in it. You know, that's that's what happens. Oh, Sequoia's in it. You know, oh, Andreessen's in it. Oh, that 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 carries along a lot of these firms. I, there's so many dozens of firms that this has happened, even sort of minor ones like Juicero. When they came, we're like, we don't get this, right? We were just sitting there going, nice people, but this seems stupid. Um, and no, they just just pile the money in. I don't know why. I don't, I don't, I, I never understood the mentality. I've been asked to be a venture capitalist many times and I've turned it down because I never understood. Well, you, you can empathize in the, with the fact that if you invest in some of these firms in 19, mm -hmm. you, you got, some of them got seven, 10x returns That's in 12 true. months, at least in paper. Yep. So it's like, okay, all of my buddies at the firm down the road, Sound Hill mm -hmm. Road, 
have literally clocked $100 million in limited partner carried interest by moving. And what happened was the following. There was this tidal wave of capital into these companies that they needed to deploy. Now, in order to deploy it, it became a war around how to get into a finite number of hot firms that seemed to be just going to the moon, and FTX is Mm -hmm. one of them. And so they could only compete on a few things. They could compete on relationships. That's how you got introduced to Sam Mm Bankman-Fried. You could compete on valuation. And it was like, well, okay, these valuations are crazy. So Masayoshi-san competed. uh, Everyone was willing to pay these crazy valuations. So a new form of competition, a new form of differentiation and winning the deal was the following. And it happened across Co2, Tiger, SoftBank, and it was the following. They said, Sam, we can move fast. We can do this round in 48 hours. Right. And so all of a sudden, now what does that mean? Granted, it won these guys a lot of deals. We can move fast. It also meant that you can't put 10 pounds of diligence in a one pound box and conduct anything Mm -hmm. resembling diligence. And you can be sure that Sequoia said to Sam Bankman-Fried, Oh, they did. They wrote an essay about it, how adorable it was. We can move fast. Oh, you need $500 million at an $8 billion value? No problem. And guess what? We have so much capital under management. We have such incredible relationships with our investors. We can sign the term sheet in 48 hours. We can fund in seven days. And they were all doing it, Kara, or not all of them. But if you wanted to deploy capital and have fun at Studio 54, of this incredible wealth generation, you had to kind of go along and pay not only these outrageous valuations, but be ready to fund in no time flat. Right, right. No, I agree. It's really, I mean, there was a, there was an essay that, that Sequoia did about it that was, that, oh God. that was just embarrassing. I don't know what else I mean, to the, say. The blow job on a piece of paper. Yeah. Uh, the blow it job. was crazy. Oh my God. Um, this is the now, they have it, people have it there here. They, they archived it because it was so bad. This is the now removed. Sequoia profile of SBF and FTX that they put up, and it was called Sam Bankman-Fried has a savior complex, and maybe you should too. Um, and it just is—it's so embarrassing. It, it's they were so saying that as if it's a good thing. Yeah, it's just an embarrassing profile. It's really no. Like, if you want really eesh. embarrassing, again, I have a bit of a bias against Sequoia, but go to Sequoia's website and look at the quotes from the partners. There's yeah. one young partner who shall remain nameless. Mm-hmm. Who he? This is like literally an exact quote. He's like. When I meet with this, when I meet with the founder CEO, I don't want to know just about the company. I want to know about how he's doing. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, I'm going to reach out to this guy and say, "No joke, I'm a three x times backed Sequoia backed CEO. I have prostateitis, erectile dysfunction. Can we get together? Because I'd really like to hear from a 29 year old who learned on the mean streets of Groton and Dartmouth, you know, how I'm doing. I mean, the quotes from these partners yeah, are just so right. like. They're comical. It, this piece, you should read it. It's in the Wayback Machine. Um, let me just read this one thing. With the SPF doing the hard work of interviewing himself, I'm free to think. And finally, just as the clock is running out on my allotted hour, by the way, hour, I ask what might be the first non-stupid question of the entire interview. So I summarize, you are young and vital and peaking at precisely the moment when the world is at and as you see it, peak crisis. SPF nods in agreement, deep in another round of storybook brawl. He's playing a video game during this. Does that strike you as a lucky coincidence? Or does it strike you as perhaps a signal that your thinking is flawed and you have a savior complex? That's an interesting question, he says, is stalling. I double down. Ooh, journalism. Um, you happen to be alive at the most important time in the history of the future race. Is it it's the existential point, really? SPF hedges. It certainly would not be one's prior, at least, not naively. It just goes on, literally, and, and then it... 
I literally am like, this guy is a horse's ass and this is nonsense. And it just is beyond belief. Anyway, good luck. Good luck, Sam Bankman-Fried. This is the end of crypto. Um, Bitcoin is off. I mean, Bitcoin yeah. has doubled this year. Like I think that they will, the crypto universe will, and maybe correctly, try and say this is we've bottomed out here. We've starched yeah. out the bad players. There's there's real value here, and it's time for you know the kind of adults in the room, whether it's a Mike Novogratz or you know that people that might be seen as aggressive but are seen as honest, ethical players making a market in the space. There is some technology here. But it's going where it should be. It's a small yeah. niche market where there's some probably some real innovation. If you're in an emerging market that has an unstable currency, there is value to getting your Argentinian pesos yeah. converted to something more stable. But I, I mean, you want to talk about, by the way, I'm listening to the best Spotify music channel, Bangles Radio, which is this, mm. all this kind of 80s music. Yeah, and Bangles, one of the greatest yeah. songs from the Bangles, of which there aren't a ton, but there are a few. Mm -hmm. The hero takes a fall. Yeah. I'm doing my predictions deck. So many heroes have taken a, Elizabeth Holmes, Adam mm -hmm. Newman, Sheryl Sandberg, Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, wh what do you think has happened to Elon Musk's brand in the last 12 months? Right, yeah. That's I would bet 90% of the world had positive views on Elon yeah, Musk my, just 12 my son months did. ago. My son did. Remember I told him my son was like, I liked him. Now he's such a douche. Just like that really pretty much. I shouldn't use that word, but that's what the word he used. But it'll happen again. There'll be someone yeah. next year. Yeah, someone. Not us, though. Anyway, let's go <laughs> on a quick us. break. Good luck, Sam. Godspeed. When we come back, what to make of a new poll about the 2024 election, and we'll speak with friend of Pivot, Kashmir Hill, about her new book on facial recognition. Support for Pivot comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software, including Jira, Confluence, and Trello, help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared, company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Discover Careers. Scott, we're back. The 2024 election is now 
under a year away. Incredibly, the President Biden is currently losing to Donald Trump in five major battleground states, according to a new poll by the New York Times and Siena College released over the weekend. Age is one of the biggest issues voters have with Biden, as you've noted, with 71% saying he's too old to be an effective president. Opinion shared across all demographic and geographic groups polled. Now, Obama was way down at this point when he before he won re-election, but I'll posit that. But if the results of the poll were the same next November, Trump would easily win the election, more than 300 electoral college votes. Uh, David Axelrod, who was an advisor to Obama, pointed out on Twitter, Biden needs to decide whether running for president is in his best interest or the country's. Um, what do you think? Uh, I, I think it's a little too early. That's my feeling. And, and, and a lot of people I respect think that, like Mike Madrid and others. When you say too early, what do you mean? I think we don't know. I think people are not like, this is just off the top of their head. I think, first of all, uh, we don't know if Trump gets convicted. I think that'll change a lot of people's minds. I don't think they suddenly like him more after he gets convicted. And I think convictions is different than just being accused of a crime. So there's those. Um, you know, there's all these, the, the wars, the, the, uh, what's happening in Ukraine, in Israel. Um, there's all kinds of that. We have the economy still, TBD, things could change. So I think there's just a lot to come. That's all. That's all. I think it's early. Uh, to your point, a poll at this point is uh, kind of meaningless. I yeah. mean, it, you just don't know. And uh, although there's just no getting around it, the fact that the president, after what are by any reasonable metric, kind of historic accomplishments. Yeah. Lowest inflation among the G7, fastest growing economy, more jobs created in two and three quarter years than any president has done in four years. I mean, he's- He's not getting credit. He's, he's, credit. he's got, if there is a piece to be kept, the reason why so far the conflict in the Middle East hasn't become a regional conflict is because he immediately sent two carrier strike forces over there. And people believe that he will use them if if mm -hmm. the Iranians get too involved here. I, I just I think the guy has literally put on a master class in presidency. And at the same time, two-thirds of his party doesn't want him to run. Yeah. And here's the thing: people recognize that the mortality rate across our species is still a hundred percent. And not only that, it's not death they're worried about. It's the two or three years leading up to death they're worried about. Fair point. I mean, he's been running for president since I was in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And I, I like the president, but like any person who ever agrees to put up with the bullshit to become president, he's a bit of a narcissist. And this narcissism that has infected everyone from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Senator Feinstein, I mean, if he announced today, I wanted to step in, I saw an opportunity to, to I think this country really needed me. And now I think it's time for a new generation. I think he'd go down as one of the greatest presidents in history. Yeah, he's been but, a great president. He has. He's, he's been a great president. But and I would love to see, I'm interviewing the congressman from Minnesota um, tomorrow. Phillips. Yeah, Phillips. Let me talk about him very briefly. Sure. Going back to the age issue, Congressman Dean Phillips is challenging Biden, trying to make the case that Democrats need a younger candidate. Uh, Phillips is 54, a third-term congressman. He's not very long. He's an heir to his, he's a rich guy, a distilling empire and co-owner of a gelato company. I feel like perhaps not the most qualified to be president. Nonetheless, he's running. One House Democrat called Phillips' campaign an exercise in futility. Mm -hmm. The New York Times polling does have an unnamed generic Democrat doing better than Biden. Obviously, RFK Jr. is doing rather well against both Trump and Biden. Um, he's trying to make this case. Uh, he, Phillips was on Bill Maher uh, on Friday. Let's listen to what he said about more candidates joining the field. The more the merrier. It's still not too late to jump into this race. I right. wish we had more competition instead of a coronation. This is not 
that difficult, and I don't understand why people are so hesitant to do what the country needs so desperately. So tell me what your thoughts are here. I, well, I've been saying this for a while. I think that the pr- so much pressure is building up, and I don't know if he's kind of the finger out of the dike, if you will, or that he breaks the seal, but I just, when you see Governor Newsom headed to Israel um, and debating Ron DeSantis, and when you see uh, Governor Whitmer, there's just a lot of people kind of waiting and saying, put me in, coach. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the Democratic bench is really strong. I think it's like when Steve Young, this is as deep as my sports metaphor goes, the greatest quarterback in history was, or one of them was Joe Montana. The second greatest was Steve Young on the bench. We have a really strong bench. And right now, as I've said, we're playing not to lose. And uh, Congressman Phillips, uh, while I don't think he will win, I think he might have a very profound impact. And that is, I think he's going to poll in the high single or double digits with no Mm -hmm. name recognition. And I think the pressure is going to build and somebody who's more credible is going to say, I'm in. Go up the middle. Interesting. Uh, RFK Jr., speaking of which, there's a new uh, there's new poll showing he has good amount of support and is in a position to be a serious threat to both parties. Uh, I think to both parties and Trump people are worried, too. That is just a radical narcissism that shows you don't give a flying fuck about America, whether it's Ralph Nader or Ross Perot. uh, all, All you're doing is handing the presidency to someone else. Right. Uh, in, an, in an exercise of narcissism. And this mm-hmm. guy. But Phillips he, is not in doing that, or no, it's just within the Democratic Party. He's not a spoiler. He's running to get the nomination in a two, of, of the Democratic Party. He's yeah. not. It's the independents that bastardize and create unintended consequences or outcomes. What does Biden do to pull himself out of this poll that there's a problematic, you know, the Israel Hamas war for Biden's reelection? I think it's early for that, too. Um, there's increased infighting within the Democratic Party, obviously, over Biden's support of Israel, although Blinken has been visiting all over the place. I think it's early on that one. But how does he pull himself out of the hole by not by not running? That's what you're saying. I just think biology is the most unforgiving friend in the world, I, uh, arbiter in the world. There's just nothing. Think about how hard all of us are fighting biology. And there's yeah. there's just there's literally almost nothing. He's done everything he can. The guy is remarkable. He's remarkable. I mean, when I we took my father's driver's license away when he was five years younger than mm-hmm. President Biden. Mm-hmm. But he, there's no time waits for no man. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the biology here, and this is also true of Trump, although I got to give it to Trump, he just comes across as more robust. Well, he's he's crazier, that's why. Yeah, but you're right. He's got the spray tan, whatever he is. But this is, at some point, your... I mean, I go to one scene, Kara, and and I've asked you to answer me honestly Mm -hmm. here. It's the first presidential debate. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Republican nominee, President Donald Trump. And, And ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Democratic nominee for president. And now scan your emotions when you say Joe Biden or when you say Governor Newsom. Or Governor Whitmer. I'd rather have them. I think the majority of Democrats, the majority of moderates who will decide this election go, I'm looking forward to seeing the contrast here. And if it's Joe Biden, they're like, oh, God, I hope he doesn't like fuck up. Oh, I think we're, we, I think we are, a ner- I think you and I are a nervous wreck at that mm-hmm. debate with Joe Biden on stage. Yep. 
That is true. That is 100% true. That said, I think he's done, he's always done a very good job handling Trump compared to everybody else. I, you know, I was a big supporter of him earlier than anybody last year, a couple of years ago, as you remember, and you made fun of me. But I thought he was the right answer for the time, and the others were sort of flash in the pans. But in this case, I'm co- sort of mixed. I think he can handle it. But I also do think that, um, yeah, I think it's early. I think, well, yeah, Trump is going to be convinced. Like, think every, about, okay, hold on. I'm sorry okay. to repeat. Think about Lucky. Think about your mom yeah. six years ago versus today. Yep, yeah, I'd agree. Six years ago versus today. Yeah. Let me guess. She was driving, living on her own. Yeah, remember right? she drove, but we didn't want her to remember Oh, my house. God. That was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Exactly. Looking at her like it couldn't find the door out. And then I see her in a car behind the driving wheel. And I'm like, you're headed that way right. And immediately she makes a left. <laughs> so I'm like, that's it. She's going to end up in, a, in Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh my God! Do you remember that? Oh, I yeah, do yeah. remember that. Yeah, well, and your aunt. I'm like, she's not only going to kill herself; she's going to kill her aunt uh, yeah, or your yeah, aunt. Yeah. But here's the thing, and this is Ugh. this is the opportunity for the guy. Yeah, it is. Think about what a service for the country would say. It's time to let a new generation. I'd love to see. I don't know if it's uh, going to be Trump either. I think he's good. I think uh, Christie and Hayes Hutchinson are uh, right. This no, guy's the candidate convicted. This the candidate, in my view, who's going to yeah. gain momentum there, and is, is by far hundred percent Haley. Because if you look at the top, coming up the middle, she's coming. If you look up at the, the top things, it's mm-hmm. inflation, conflicts around the world, and who can unite America? That's Haley, Haley, and Haley. I mean, yeah. uh, she has she has a real shot. And my biggest fear is that Trump picks her as a, as his veep. Yeah. But if Biden said, "I'm opening this up to this incredible," ben- I'd love to see Mayor Pete run. I would love, or Secretary Pete. I'd love to see. I'd love to see Secretary Blinken on the debate stage. That's a I man. Think he's, I think he's fantastic. Yeah. There, the, our bench is so deep here of candidates who, in contrast to President Trump, would be like, "Oh, I'm definitely going with that guy." Yeah. Or a gal. I don't know. So far, that's not what I picked up. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, we've got to move on. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but you, it was a, that was a very good discussion about this. You were very good. You weren't just making old jokes. Um, anyway, let's bring in our friend of Pivot. Kashmir Hill is a technology and privacy reporter at the New York Times and author of Your Face Belongs to Us, The Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. Welcome, Kashmir. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having good. me on. Good. As you know, I think you're a fantastic reporter. And this is, came out of an investigation into facial recognition startup Clearview AI. I'd love you to sort of give us a background on what made you start digging. Obviously, facial recognition has been a topic I've talked about for a long time. But what made you start digging into this Company and I want to specifically you write that what Clearview has done was not scientific a scientific breakthrough it was ethical arbitrage why don't you start from there yeah yeah I mean you're actually in the book Kara asking mm-hmm. about facial recognition a decade ago I initially started digging into Clearview AI because I heard about them through a tipster who had come across the company in a public records request mm-hmm. and they claimed to have done something pretty extraordinary that they had scraped billions of photos from the public web, including social media sites, to build this this facial recognition app where you take a picture of somebody, upload it to their app, and it shows you everywhere else they appear on the internet. And they claim that it worked with 98.6% accuracy. And I hadn't heard of a facial recognition technology 
you know, product that worked that well, that searched at that scale. And so it was very striking to me knowing kind of what I did at that point. And at that point, I thought facial recognition technology honestly didn't work that well. I'd heard it was very mm-hmm. clunky, that police didn't consider it a very powerful tool, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't seen another company do something like that. Uh, it seemed like something I would hear about Facebook or Google doing, not a little startup that was yeah. very secretive. Nothing was known about them. And so that's why I initially started digging into them. And and it was pretty extraordinary what they built. But what was extraordinary about it was, as you said, they were they were willing to do what others hadn't. The, t- the building blocks were there. Yeah. The reference you were making, the other companies have been working on similar technology in the book. You mentioned an interview that Walt Mossberg and I did with Google's then chairman, Eric Schmidt. He told us Google had built facial recognition technology. We were very intent on finding out about it, but that had withheld it, largely for, I think, ethical reasons, right? In terms of not understanding the power of it. Every time I was at Google, they you could tell they could do it, right? They could, they, they had, you know, whether it was looking not just faces, but things like the in Paris, the Eiffel Tower, this and that. They, they had, they, they were way down that road much further than people realized. Yeah, and the the technology got better, like with much like ChatGPT and these other, you know, products, the neural net technology and large scale learning models really made the technology more powerful. But yeah, both Google and Facebook got to this point where they said, yeah, we, you know, you can take a, a, a stranger's picture and figure out who they are, you know, organize photos you have of them by face. But they both said, they both looked at facial recognition technology. And I thought this was striking because these aren't companies for known for being particularly conservative in terms of new data usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they said, yeah, the downsides are too large here. I think specifically Eric Schmidt said, you know, imagine what an evil dictator could do with this. Yep. And there's positive uses, but we're too worried about the harmful uses. And so, yeah, they sat on the technology. But they could do it. Same thing with with generative AI. They could do it. Is they the could do it. I actually watched this video of Facebook engineers a few years back. They're sitting in a conference room in Menlo Park with a smartphone strapped to the brim of a hat. It was It's still a very janky version of the future, like kind them. of augmented reality glasses, where they looked around the room, and when the camera saw a face, it would call out the person's name. So they both had it. They sat on it, and it took this kind of startup with nothing to lose to go ahead and and put this out there and see what they could gain through it. Which is always the danger, whether it's CRISPR or anything else. The cloning was done by someone in China, as, you know, as opposed to the more famous scientists who were able to do it. Scott? Uh, nice to meet you, Kashmir. Uh, my sense of these technologies is that the, the utility, if the utility is strong, it'll run away from the privacy concerns. The people talk a big game about privacy and then they want it adopted. In the last just week, I've had facial recognition expedite my uh, journey at airports and through TSA. Is your sense that the utility is going to get so far out ahead of privacy concerns that a lot of externalities will emerge? What, what, if anything, are you most worried about with this technology? Yeah, I mean, I hear a lot from activists who say facial recognition technology is is too dangerous. You know, it's it's like mm-hmm. nuclear weapons. It's the the downsides are are so large that we need to ban it. I you know I don't see that happening. I think there's a lot of beneficial uses, um, but it's this spectrum, right? And the version of it that I wouldn't want to see. Hey, it's great. Yes, for getting into a country, it's great for opening your your smartphone, um, even solving crimes. I, I you know I've talked to officers who've been able to solve you know very horrible crimes using this technology, but the idea of it 
becoming ubiquitous. You know, if you have facial recognition algorithms running on all the surveillance cameras all the time where the government can track anybody, if every company, you know, business has this running so that they identify you as you walk through the front door, I think that's really alarming. And we've already seen that happen with Madison Square Garden, right? This is my favorite example. They -hmm. installed facial recognition algorithms a few years ago for security reasons. And then in the last year decided, well, we've got this infrastructure in place. Why don't we use this to keep out the people we don't like, um, such as lawyers who have sued us, right? And so you get that surveillance creep, that function creep. And so I really think that there should be guardrails so that we don't see the kind of like worst applications of this start to be embraced. Which which we first saw with police. We'll talk about that in a second. I was in the uh, Whole Foods the other day and they wanted to do palm recognition and, you know, through Amazon One. Have you seen this in the stores now? You put your palm up and then it recognizes your palm and then you can pay by your palm, which I said, uh, no, I was like, it's a palm too far, Jeff Bezos. It's not happening. With Kara's <laughs> I, I, I saw this at a Whole Foods in San Francisco, of course. And I asked the, mm-hmm. the attendant there, I'm like, how many people actually, you know, sign up and give their palm? And mm-hmm. he, you know, uh, not very scientific, but his estimate was, you know, two or three percent of customers. And it was funny to me because a company like this, it was called Pay by Touch in the early mm-hmm. 2000s. They were yep. collecting people's fingerprints to have them pay for groceries. And they're actually the reason why this law uh, the, the one law that, that's super relevant to facial recognition technology in the United States, the Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, it's why it exists. Because an ACLU lawyer was there, the clerk was trying to collect his fingerprint, and he's like, what is this company? And when he looked into them, he was very disturbed by who was running it and that they were you know, mm-hmm. asking for people's biometrics instead of a credit card just to pay for groceries. It seemed ridiculous to him. And his research led to this yeah. super strong law that's been one of the main uh, kind of hurdles for companies that want to do facial recognition technology. But what is the future? Because, you know, there was the pushback with police with cams on them or in Britain using so much excessive facial recognition in the streets and the mistakes that are made. Obviously, racial bias is a major issue. I remember interviewing Andy Jassy uh, about the issues around their facial recognition technology, which was called recognition with a K. Talk a little bit about where is the future, because they definitely get slammed up against these issues pretty quickly. It does seem like the dream for technology companies is to create a world in which we don't need to carry any bags around with us, Mm -hmm. uh, that they keep trying to sell us on this, right? Amazon's like, pay with your palm, and then that means you're free to wander the world carrying nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, amusement parks and gyms and, you know, other places like that really like the idea of biometrics to prevent kind of ticket fraud or membership abuse so they can make sure the person that buys that ticket and walks in is the same person that tries to get in later. So there's certainly a push for it from a lot of different companies. And I I do think the use of facial recognition technology in situations that benefit us you know, that, that that society will probably embrace that. I mean, even for the book, I went to London to do research into how the UK police are using facial recognition technology. Quite heavily. I landed at Heathrow. Instead of waiting, you know, hours and hours to be processed to cross the border, yeah. you know, I walked up to a little kiosk, put my passport down, look into a facial recognition camera, and it makes sure that my face matches the biometric chip in my passport. And I walked in, and I was in the country, you know, tw- you know, 20 minutes after the plane landed. It's incredibly convenient, and I think we'll see more of that. But this idea of uh, there's two different versions, right? That's like making sure that you're you. 
And this mm-hmm. other version, what Clearview AI um, is selling, is the kind of finding you in a huge database of persons and mm-hmm. tracking you and, and kind of using facial recognition in a way that doesn't benefit you, that may harm you. And I think that's what we're going to see the pushback against. But I think they'll come for more biometrics, right? It's going to be your palm print. It's going to be your voice print. I'm hmm. sure there's going to be a company that comes along that does what Clearview AI did, but for voice, where you upload you know, somebody talking and then it finds everywhere else on the internet uh, mm-hmm. where they're in a video, where they're talking. Um, that is, unless we put some kind of guardrails around it that say you can't just use people's information this way you know, without their consent. So how does that happen, right? Because, you know, especially with, you know, advances in AI and everything else, this makes it very easy to do this. So what are companies working to address that? And then legislation on a national level, you mentioned one piece of legislation, but it's, it is something where cities tend to act, states tend to go into line, especially around racial bias, which is evident in a lot of these police cams, for example, um, which some some of which is good because we found out what they're actually doing versus what they say they're doing, right? As you said, there's pluses and minuses. But what are, what are the companies doing to address it? Or will we always be plagued by a Clearview AI kind of company that doesn't care, right? We're just lucky because we're, we're relying on the kindness of Google not to track us everywhere. Right. I mean, I think that is that is something that I wanted the book to get at is that with these new technological tools and the fact that they're open source and that these models are increasingly kind of accessible to anyone with technical savvy is that it is going to be, you know, the the most radical actors, small actors like Clearview AI. I mean, it's just this ragtag crew of, of founders that they're able to basically kind of cross the lines that have existed. Um, and I think we're going to see this in in other spheres beyond just facial recognition technology, other kinds of AI. In terms of what companies can do, I mean, we saw Google and Facebook decide to sit on this and hold it back. I see companies like Signal, the private messaging app, creating face blurring tools so that when you are taking a photo of a crowd, for example, you can blur out their faces before you put it online. Basically, like, limiting the supply of faces, right? Um, Because that's what's been so surprising to me. Every time Clearview, I've had a Clearview search done on me, it's not just finding kind of the photos I've put out there. It's me at a concert, you know, in the background of someone else's photo. It's Mm -hmm. it's kind of tracking where I've been as other people have taken photos of it. So I guess that's one way they're addressing it, right? The supply of faces. I do think that the the most effective route is going to be regulations, a policy framework. Uh, And Europe is, as they often are on privacy laws, they are ahead of us. They said that what Clearview AI did was illegal, that you can't collect this sensitive information about people, put them in a database like this without their consent. They essentially kicked Clearview out of their country. In the U.S., we have that law I was talking about earlier, BIPA in Illinois. It says that you can't use people's face prints or voice prints or fingerprints without their consent or face a very hefty fine. And because of that law, um, Madison Square Garden, which is keeping lawyers out of their New York venues like MSG and Beacon Theater and Radio City Music Hall, um, they have a theater in Chicago, and they are not using facial recognition technology to keep lawyers out there because it would violate this law. So, mm-hmm. so these laws can work. Uh, we've regulated technology in the past that we found kind of frightening or, or taboo, and I think we can do it again. Scott? So obvious, there's obvious applications here at travel, hospitality, retail. What other industries do you think are going to be able to substantially lower their costs or add 
you know, reduce consumer friction here. What, what do you think is the next industry to adopt facial recognition? Well, we're seeing it adopted a lot in kind of uh, amusement settings. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm seeing a lot of sports stadiums. They're starting to use facial recognition technology, sometimes for kind of picking up your food, like you can order it on sure. an app, and then you just show up and it scans your face and you get it. Um, so I think that that is something that we'll see a lot. I think real estate buildings are interested yeah. in this as like, you know, an access tool. My kind of fear with this is that we see the kind of tracking we already have online, right? Like every time you go to a website, they're trying to figure out who you are, mm -hmm. you know, what you've bought in the past, how much you have to spend. There's kind of all of this background tracking that's happening all the time as we move through the internet. And what facial recognition technology could mean is taking all that and moving it into the real world. That you walk into a store and they have these cookies that are attached to your face, um, you know, knowing what your leanings are, what your purchase history is, how much you have to spend. And I think that kind of idea of everything knowable about about us on the internet kind of trailing us in the real world, I think it would be pretty chilling. Um, and if it's just, I mean, I know you guys are thinking about the company uses of it, but I always think about how people will use this, the kind of little brother aspect of this. And if everyone has a Clearview AI type app on their phone, Mm -hmm. what that means for day-to-day -day privacy and the kind of trolling that happens online, just seeing that all of a sudden leap into the real world where they see you buy something sensitive at the pharmacy and take your picture and they're like, look who just bought, you know, hemorrhoid cream and they're tweeting right. it out. Right. Um, or you're having a sensitive conversation over dinner, assuming that you're anonymous, that the people around you don't know who you are, won't understand the context of your conversation. And then they take a photo of you and now they know. Um, right. Just all these ways in which we kind of assume that we're anonymous as we move through the world, that kind of everyday comfort we have could just disappear. Remember that it was a Sun Microsystems. There is no privacy. Get used to it. Remember that was Scott McNeely, right? Something like that. Yeah. What advice do you have for people trying to protect their own privacy? What can they do? Yeah. I mean, with facial recognition technology specifically, um, the vendors have made sure that this works even with masks on. I mean, you can wear a ski mm -hmm. mask. That would be a very effective way of making sure you weren't tracked this way. Great. Then you get arrested. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, thinking more deliberatively about your image on the public Internet, there are more and more benefits, I think, to posting privately and restricting yeah, just your image being available. So thinking about that, I, I've asked a couple of law firms, you know, knowing what you know now, what MSG did, this kind of retaliation against lawyers, are you thinking mm -hmm. about taking your photos off your websites um, so that they can't make this kind of list? Because that's how MSG made it. They scraped the law firm websites, bio pages. So yeah, so just thinking about what you're putting out there. If you are so lucky to live in a state that has privacy laws that allow mm -hmm. you to access what a company has on you and delete it, you can actually go to, uh, if you live in California, Colorado, or Connecticut, or Virginia, they have laws right now that say that you can get yourself deleted from companies' databases. So if you don't like this, you can go to Clearview AI or to um, to some of the other public face search mm -hmm. engines that are out there and say, delete me from your database. But hard to do. You have to be proactive, in other words. You have to be proactive. And I and I, California actually requires companies to say how many of these requests they get. And I looked at Clearview AI's website, and over the last two years, they've had something like 800 requests for deletions in California. California's population is 
what, 34 million people? Million, so. Something like that. Yeah. So not many people just to get, it's convenience. What you have to do is not have a face is really what I think the issue is. <laughs> Scott, last question. What would you tell parents to do regarding pictures that of their kids posted on social? Don't do it. I mean, I I think unless there is some real benefit to posting publicly, you should be doing it privately. You should have a private yeah. account, you know, limited to family and friends. Uh, I did kind of get, uh, I went to PimEyes, which is one of these public face search engines, and I asked about this, the kind of search of, of kids' faces, and um, mm-hmm. they've actually decided to block results for minors' faces. So that was a company kind of making a proactive move. But yeah, generally, I say... Don't do it. And when you get those waivers, you know, from the school or the daycare that says, is it okay if we post your your kid online? Say no. Feel free to say no. I really don't see the benefits in in that kind of public posting in the world that we're in today. Yep. They can, when they can get them anyway, as you say, from other places, if they're walking down the street, unfortunately, they can see them um, everywhere you go. Yeah, we are in a, this is going to change. And especially as the technology becomes better and better, and, and it has gotten better and better. You're not, it is not just face, although your book is called that. It's face, voice, palm, everything, your signature, how you walk, right? There's, there's all kinds of things being, you know, your gait can be different than someone else's, which is interesting. Yeah, this is what's so hard about privacy is mm-hmm. that we kind of put this information out there or share information about ourselves in, in one context and it gets used in a way we don't expect. And with right. these the technology getting better all the time, it's hard to predict how the information you make available could could come back to haunt you. And I just don't think that most of us who are putting our face online, you know, over the last two decades on the internet anticipated that something like this would come along that would reorganize the internet and make it searchable by face. It's just hard to. I don't know. I think they knew, Cash. You think, well, you knew, Kara. You're you're not the normal. No, I have a section in my book where they get mad at me, the Google founders, because I said they couldn't control all of search. And I said, well, I'm worried about a dangerous person running it, right? I call them thugs. I said, ultimately, they're thugs. And uh, I said, I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about someone else. Like, But they weren't even thinking of it. You're right. They were never thinking of it. It was really, it's a real, it's a real blind spot, so to speak, on this particular pot book. Anyway, it's a really important book. Cash is an amazing reporter, does some of the top stuff around these issues. And again, the book is called Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. They will probably be successful. In any case, thank you so much, Cash. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, one more quick break. We'll be back for wins and fails. Support for the show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for business to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers organized by skills and experience. Plus, you can streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. Fiverr Pro is perfect for businesses that want to work with top talent for immediate or long-term needs. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time, allowing you to flex your budget without any headcount constraints. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code PIVOT for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com. 
F-I-V-E-R-R.com and use code PIVOT. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Okay, Scott, wins and fails. May I go first? May I go first? Something I wish was going to be a win, but I suspect it's not going to be. The Marvels is opening up. Uh, A lot of the MCU movies are showing signs of fatigue. Um, And this one, of course, is women, and so they'll probably have even more fatigue. Um, It's with Brie Larson, who I adore. As you know, I loved her in uh, Lessons in Chemistry. I think she's great. But it's pacing. It's not pacing well um, in terms of sales. Another theory far more likely is no one really asked for Captain Marvel's sequel. While the film grossed over a billion dollars when it released in 2019, it has almost no cultural footprint and passionate goodwill in 2023. Um, It served its purpose of connecting one Avengers movie to another and set up Larson's superhero as an effective, if dull, hero who takes out the best villain Marvel has yet produced Thanos, but uh, none of the many trailers have convinced audiences. I'm sorry, I'm going to go see it. But I, I, I'm, it's a both I, win for me because I love Brie Larson and the whole gang that's doing it, uh, but probably a fail at the box office. The superhero movies look like maybe they've got the stuffing knocked out on them a little bit. All right. Any uh, fails? Uh, that is the fail. I wish I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't because I bet it's a great movie. I'm excited to see it. Um, uh, you know, fail is continuing the creepiness of, of Mike Johnson. It continues. He had an app to monitor his porn use with his son. The anti-gay stuff is getting more and more clear what he was doing. Um, the bank account, just just a strange man, just hmm. a strange fella. Anyway. Got it. Um, okay, so my win is Caleb Williams. He's the quarterback for the USC Trojans, who mm-hmm. I hate as a Bruin, but okay. he's probably going to be number one draft pick. And uh, most recently this weekend, it made news everywhere uh, he kind of lost the game, and he ran over. It was sort of inconsolable and jumped into the fans where he embraced his mother and began to sob, like while he was still in uniform. And I thought that was such a seminal moment in what needs to happen among uh, young men who unfortunately let masculinity get in the way of expressing their emotions. 77% of suicides now are men. It used to be three to one. It's now going edging towards four to one. Yeah. And a big problem is that men have this vision of masculinity, meaning that when you are struggling, you keep it to yourself. And so, for example, of all the addictions, the one that has the greatest incidence of suicide is actually gambling. Because if you have an addiction to alcohol or opiates or meth or whatever it might be, people notice it and they move in. 
And with gambling, you can get in really deep and no one even knows and people feel as if there's no way out. And the reason I bring that up is the key to getting better is a practice of expressing your emotions. And this kid, this kid is really like, he said to the the entire world, I'm going to be the Heisman Trophy winner. I'm an amazing fucking athlete. I define masculinity. And when I am really sad, I go and embrace my mother and I don't give a flying fuck who is watching. And I think that, I think that that one moment, that unscripted moment, literally advanced masculinity and mental health among young men, hmm. like a light years, because it's a huge problem among men that they don't want to express their hurt and their emotions mm-hmm. for fear that they'll they'll um, be seen as being less manly. I just thought this was uh, this was such a powerful moment. In addition to it being a very raw, moving moment. Yeah. I think it'll have a real positive impact. Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, right. so my win is Caleb Williams. Uh, my my fail is, I think at some point, the university leadership across America's universities is going to realize that there's a difference between free speech and hate speech and start kicking out students. Um, I almost got kicked out of UCLA several times, uh, mm. mostly because I would get below a 2.0 GPA more than two quarters in a row. Yeah. There was a window that, called- That the, I'm not surprised, but go ahead. There was a window called the emergency loan window. And with your student ID, you could get 50 bucks, no questions asked, but you had to pay it back within seven days. Mm-hmm. I went past seven days once and I got a notice saying you've been kicked out of UCLA. So we, we kick people out of UCLA all the time. We kick people out of universities all the time. But when people show up to uh, uh, you know, a university and say things, there's free speech. If you want to march with a flag, if you want to stay down with Israel, if you want to be a professor that says that she, you know, she was uh, affirmed mm-hmm. by certain actions uh, of the Palestinians, I actually think that's, I don't want to say that's fine, I disagree with it. But if I went to, a, if I went to the campus at NYU and said, burn the gays or mm-hmm. gas the, or lynch the blacks, I would be out the next day. And I should be out the next day. Mm-hmm. And we, everybody goes to this bullshit First Amendment, and we we have a Second Amendment, but if you show up with an AR-15 to campus, you are kicked out of school. And there's one thing to have free speech. There's another thing to be saying things like, gas the Jews, burn the Jews. And then I get an email from my department head saying, microaggressions will not be tolerated. And my attitude is, where between micro and aggression is uh, students actually engaging in this type of hateful speech. And there is a difference between free speech and a difference between hate speech. And it is time for our university leadership to step up and say, if you say burn anybody, if you say do anything that invokes violence against any group, we are Mm -hmm. kicking your ass out of school. It is time. Yeah. I, I, you know, Bill Ackman also had a very, I usually think he sometimes goes off, but he had a very good letter to Harvard about this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the people who are sort of like, let everybody say what they want crowd is now on the other side of that, which is interesting because it's complex, as you know. I, I do tend to agree with you here. It really has gone too far. Some of it is just casual cruelty, uh, such as pulling down the hostage pictures. I find that I don't even understand what child does that. If a child of mine did that uh, with a disrespect for other people's opinions or putting up their stuff, I would be furious. Um, so, and this stuff is, it's, it's gone past the point of um, tolerance. I would agree with you. I would agree. I would agree. Anyway, it's a sad time. Hopefully uh, people will get back to a more central place where they treat each other with respect that everybody deserves. Um, But who knows? Probably not right now the way we're headed in this country sometimes. Um, That's how a lot of people feel. 
Anyway, we want to hear from you. Send us your questions about business tech or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT. And please feel free to disagree with us. I suspect a lot of people will disagree with uh, with us on this issue for sure. Anyway, uh, Scott, that's the show. We'll be back on Friday for more. Can you read us out? Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Zoe Marcus, and Travis Larchuk. Ernie Undertot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows, Neil Severio, and Gaddy McBain. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Young men, displaying your emotions is a feature, not a bug. That is part of what it means to be a man. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.